Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Wendy Wallison about crap, a history of cheap stuff in America. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, th- I mean, th- this is a wonderful book. It's got a wonderful title. Uh, it's full of absolutely wonderful objects, uh, gadgets, uh, just the finest kind of rubbish <laughs> that America has to offer. But at the same time, you know, I'm sort of being quite flippant there, but it's a really serious book that has, I, I think, a, a really important set of things to say about both the history and kind of um, contemporary uh, world in, in which we, we find ourselves, not just in, in the States, but, but beyond. And the place to start probably is with the title. What actually is crap? What, what are we actually talking about? And I suppose, crucially, what is it not as well? Right. Yeah, that's thank you, Dave. Um, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, so for me, crap isn't like a particular good, like some things are crap and some things aren't, but it's more like an existential state of being for objects um, than the objects themselves. It's more of like a quality of something. So like what might be crap to me might be a cherished thing for you. So in some respects, it's um, subjective and it changes over time. Um, both in terms of the eras that we're living in and the time of the biography of the the object itself. So, for example, something that might have been a useful object at one point, um, you throw in a junk drawer and it becomes sort of a piece of crap, um, but you save it in that junk drawer thinking maybe you can turn it into a useful object again. Um, But beyond, like the subjective, because, you know, I know it when I see it isn't particularly helpful. Um, I think that there are some more universal things we can say about crap. Um, so states of crappiness are, um, you know, things that, that I call, um, objects that are insincere. 
Um, so I, I write in the book, an object's relative crappiness lies in the extent to which it offers false hope, was produced to hasten its own obsolescence, has no clear purpose, and or has little emotional utilitarian or market value. So crap is is stuff that we don't need. Um, it's often stuff that we don't want, but we accumulate it anyway. Um, and in short, it's sort of fundamentally false stuff in a variety of ways. And so my book is broken up into chapters that really um, focus on different kinds of crappiness. So objects that are crappy in different ways, and, and we can get into that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth saying it's not just the story of things that are cheap or uh, things that are badly made or, or whatever. In some parts of the book, you deal with uh, quite high quality goods. Uh, some parts of the book, well, I mean, yeah, it's all relative, actually. Um, you know, and some parts of the book are about um, objects that actually may have, you know, important uh, meanings to people, but at the same time uh, may have that kind of um, quality of, of being um, pretty kind of badly made or, or shoddy or, 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 or whatever. And what's kind of fascinating, I suppose, from that definition is why did you write a book about this? In, intuitively, um, when I started reading the book, I was like, of course we needed this book um, you know, to bring together these varieties of, of crappiness, as, as you've said. But where did the kind of uh, the idea, the inspiration come from? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I'm a, a historian of consumer culture, history of capitalism, material culture, and um, so I've read plenty of uh, studies and scholarship on, you know, consumption, you know, consumer goods, material objects, and I I increasingly became frustrated that almost everything that I was reading focused on very high-end goods, you know, fine pieces of fine art, um, you know, handcrafted objects, beautiful, expensive things. And I'm not saying that those aren't worthy things to study because they certainly are, but those aren't the things that most of us can afford. And they're certainly not the things that most of us surround ourselves with. So what about all the other stuff that fills our lives physically, sort of emotionally, mentally. And so I got thinking about, you know, what, what I call p- more pedestrian objects or like vernacular goods. And through a better understanding of the stuff that we live with day to day and the history of those things, I thought we could maybe, it's sort of a you know, bold, ambitious thing, and I'm not sure if I achieved it, but I thought we, I could maybe get at a better understanding of, like, a cultural history of ordinary people and our ordinary lives and our ordinary things. And just because they're ordinary doesn't mean they're important. In fact, I would argue they're more important because they're most of our lived experiences. And so, because I'm, I'm someone who's interested in commodities and and sort of culture in its material form um this is the approach that i chose to take i mean part of grappling with that uh sense of the kind of ordinary everyday lives uh and the crap that fills uh those ordinary everyday lives is that this stuff has to come from somewhere 
Um, and sort of throughout the book, you, you, you engage with that question. And I'm fascinated really by where the book begins, which is, I guess, this kind of shift that happens in the States, but also it happens in, in consumer societies all over the world from people who are kind of like peddling cheap goods, uh, you know, that kind of uh, vision of a, of a peddler of uh, wares, as it were, and the shift to institutions, you know, in some cases kind of grand institutions that we're uh, sort of familiar with uh, that go on to have global status. So, so what's the story, I suppose, of, of the first uh, initial sellers or peddlers of crap? And then how does that shift to kind of bigger institutions like, um, I suppose, things like chain stores or, or maybe the kind of cheaper, lower end department stores? Yeah, that's so that's a, a long a long, complex story, but there are definitely through lines. I, I agree with you. So, you know, the peddler, the itinerant peddler starts, uh, you know, roving the back country roads in the hinterlands of America in the the late 1700s um, with a cart or a pack. And he has, you know, little trinkets, what were called Yankee notions, petty luxuries, cheap little things, varieties of goods that he could sell most often to women. You know, he would show up on somebody's um, front doorstep and, you know, open his, basically his treasure, treasure chest of goods. These would be things like, you know, mother of pearl buttons or pencils plated with imitation gold or, you know, miscellaneous yards of lace and ribbon painted tinware sewing scissors, things like that. Um, so there was this combination. He sold these goods that were a combination of low price, novelty, meaning newness, um, and variety. And people became really attracted to that. And the peddler um, represented new ideas. He brought goods from um, more populated areas. He offered a variety of goods that people couldn't get where they were living. So people living in rural areas um, could go to the dry goods store and they did for necessities, you know, um, barrels of flour, pounds of sugar, bolts of cloth. But those things, you know, changed only maybe seasonally or once a year. Um, and those things weren't really very sexy, as necessities. And so the, the peddler um, brought all of this new stuff and made it enticing for people to buy. And by the 1820s and 1830s, you start to see in, you know, decent sized towns and cities, things called variety stores offering what they called cheap goods um, popping up. And so these were sort of the brick and mortar versions of the peddler who were offering the same kinds of things. Um, it was like the peddler on steroids. Um, and they advertised their wares as cheap, cheap, cheap. And then you would see in these newspaper advertisements, just lists of like hundreds of different kinds of goods, chinaware, cheap jewelry, fake flowers, kitchen utensils, you know, little chapbooks, straw hats, pieces of lace, gloves, all sorts of stuff. And what the argument I make in the book is that it was this combination of low price and variety that really triggered people to buy. Um, so part of what I also wanted to unpack was um, the story of the growth of mass consumption, just because we had more goods and a lot of these 
early goods were imported, but increasingly we we in the United States were making them domestically as our manufacturing um, productivity sort of ramped up. Um, just because people were were you know presented with new goods didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to buy them. They had to be convinced that these things were worth spending money on. And they had to increasingly see themselves as consumers, as people who would buy um, more than just beyond what was necessary for daily life. So there was a shift sort of materially in what was going on in the culture and also kind of psychologically um, in how people saw themselves and their relationship to the market. Um, and then from there, you know, we can we can talk about the the change, sort of the maturation of cheap goods stores into the five and dimes that um, that sprung up in the the later part of the nineteenth century. I mean, you, one of the things you said there about people both, I suppose, being convinced or at least uh, buying into the idea that um, they needed crap. And, you know, crap could be um, sort of justified as, as a purchase. And the idea of, you know, people seeing themselves as, as consumers really hits, I guess, the kind of peak or maybe uh, it's probably not the right term, but a kind of golden age by the time we're thinking about the rise of television and the idea of the gadget. And I was really struck by the discussion of gadgets, which, which kind of comes slightly later, sort, sort of towards the middle of the book, because here is this, you know, just a whole range of absolutely useless, sometimes, you know, ill-functioning and poorly designed <laughs> rubbish that is, you know, has both, you know, a sort of uh, mass appeal through television, through this kind of new medium of reaching people and is promising to kind of, you know, transform people's lives, make people's lives better. And in the book, you know, you talk about the different sort of, I guess, kind of transformations of domestic labor, transformations of consciousness of people, you know, in their relationship to work. And, and, and so to kind of give you a question rather than a statement, what, what is a gadget and what um, I suppose is kind of the history of the gadget? Yeah, so um, gadgets are actually some of my favorite forms of, of crap, and I have to admit that I love watching infomercials for you know things like the garden weasel and the you know uh, copper coated nonstick frying pans that will you know you can melt cheese in them and stuff, and the back braces for pain and the the flexi seal stuff where they cut the boat in half and then they tape it together and you can, you know, it still floats. Like I love that stuff because gadgets, like you said, are um, for the most part fairly useless, but they, their promise is that they will make our labor um, to do a certain thing not only um, less onerous, but actually kind of fun. Or often they will create problems that they then purport to solve. Like I just watched an infomercial for this um, microwave egg steamer that, you know, says, oh, it's really hard to like boil an egg. And here's this gadget that you can, and it's like, it's not hard to like fix an egg, but you're creating this problem so that you can sell us this thing that purports to solve it. But the thing with gadgets is that they often create more labor. Um, often they don't work. 
and or they create more labor for us because say they're hard to clean or they're hard to, you know, take apart or put together. Um, they, um, often promise to do too many things. I'm thinking of like multi-tools, the more things they promise to do, it means the more things they're not going to do very well at all. Um, and a lot of these things go back also to the, the 19th century. You mentioned television, which is a really important part of this, but, but before television, there were traveling salesmen, similar to the peddlers, um, who would be sales agents for, for companies in the cities, New York, Chicago, um, and so on, who would go around and demonstrate these gadgets. And so one of the crucial things about gadgets is the demonstration. They need to be explained. Um, people need to be shown how to use them and to be shown what they promise to do. And that's really exciting. And, and I think that our attraction to gadgets and the fact that we keep buying them over and over, even if, even if they end up not working is that we want to kind of do that magic too. We want to be the magician who is making our lives easier. And we're also sort of curious about how this thing works. And so that's, this is just a sort of an aside, but that's the other aspect to this about, about crap and about other kinds of goods is that they're not like, they're not all bad. Like in the case of gadgets, like we can be really imaginative about these things. Yes, they'll probably disappoint us in the end, but they're, they, they can be kind of fun um, or have these other aspects that um, change the sort of the texture and the, the pace of our, our daily lives. Um, so getting back to gadgets, so it's, it's the demonstration is the key to, you know, defining what a gadget is and to selling it. And so of course, television was the perfect medium for that because that was, you know, you could demonstrate stuff on TV. And in the early days, there wasn't programming late night. There, there wasn't anything on the television. So those slots were really cheap. And so that was the perfect um, you know, moment and opportunity for gadget makers to to do their thing. And so the first um, gadget demonstration on TV that we know of is um, for the Vitamix mixer in 1949. And you can see this on YouTube. It's an amazing um, piece of footage. It's like 45 minutes. And it's all about um, this this guy, William Papa Barnard, his pitch, and he was a former like vaudevillian. He traveled with fairs, so he was a pitch man. And he took his sort of show on TV and sold these Vitamix mixers to a new, you know, new audience um, who, who had insomnia, couldn't sleep, had the TV on. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the what you said that put me in mind of i suppose the kind of the warmth you've got towards um a lot of the stuff uh, that you're describing as as much as you know you've been critical say of gadgets and you know the sort of uselessness the creation of more work at the same time you know we, we shouldn't mistake crap for just meaning low quality um and having no sort of um sentiment or no kind of emotional connection and 
two things you, you, you do in the book is one, you look at, um, and I, I sort of wrote this term down, you look at kind of crap adjacent things, which I guess are kind of executive crap. Uh, which um, you know is is often very you know high quality is is quite you right. know, um, so, so, sort of good and you know in some cases expensive. But you also think about you know gifts and, and the gift relationship. And and one thing I'm intrigued by, and, and I'll ask you about both of those in turn, is the way that um, really the kind of high end stuff is as much a story about how advertising became much more sophisticated in America. And how you know particular uh, executive level uh, objects, free gifts, um, in, inducements, and incitements are, are really becoming kind of personalised and targeted. So I suppose, and again, th- thinking about um, a question is what's going on by the time we get to um, a level of crap that is quite good, quite high quality. What's the kind of uh, I suppose kind of hidden story behind executive crap? Yeah, so executive crap is is really kind of interesting. And for people who might not know what we're talking about, these are like um, gifts that were given, they were exchanged between between executives. In fact, I don't know if, if they still do this. Um, you know, there's like the holiday fruit basket and stuff like that. But there, there were also like very common in the '50s. So after after the war, and you have like a new rise of the executive sort of managerial class with the rise of the suburbs. And again, another aside, but studying crap like takes us it has a lot of tentacles, takes us into all sorts of different things. It's not just about the objects, of course, but about their place in a changing society. So in the '50s, you know, there's this this competition among men and this, this, um, executive, this creation of a new executive class. And one of the ways that they both sort of, that men kind of both bonded and competed with each other was exchanging these executive gifts. So they would be like, um, desk sets or pen sets or, dart boards or, you know, even, even sometimes things like high-end trash cans and, and things. And they were a combination of often useful things like pens, but, but then they were often engraved to show that like, I'm personalizing this for you. And that in itself was, um, was, you know, a mark of um, conspicuous consumption because it cost more to get something engraved and then you're giving it to somebody else. And that's great, but anything that's engraved or has somebody's name on it then can't be exchanged. It really, um, it has to like sort of stay with that person. Um, It doesn't have like universal value. And so these nice things or expensive things are at the same time kind of encrapified. And what's also interesting is that everybody is sort of exchanging the same kinds of gifts. And there were, there were also sort of consultants who could be hired to do this gift exchange for you. So, you know, we think of exchanging gifts as a very intimate thing. You do it among um, your your intimates and in exchanging gifts that that um, that act itself shows 
how much you care about somebody and how much you know them by how you're selecting that gift. Um, and so during this era, you know, if you're hiring other people to do this for you, to pick out the gifts and to even sometimes fill out the gift cards and everybody knows that everybody else is doing it, it's a really interesting kind of weird power move and it's a perversion of what we typically think of traditional gift giving. And so those are sort of the the crappy dimensions to those things. As I said um, in our introduction, like I'm trying to unpack the different kind of um, valences of crappiness for different kinds of goods. And so in the example of executive gifts, they're, they're crappy in terms of their sentiment. You know, they might be really high quality, very expensive things. Um, so they're not crap materially, but they're crappy in, um, in the uh, sentiments and the emotions and the sort of sincerity, um, sincerity that they convey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other thing that the book does with regards to gifts is it grapples with the great institution that is the gift shop. And just to, to sort of carry on that line of thought you've you've outlined about questions of sort of sincerity, um, I was re- really intrigued by the idea of kind of gifts being authentic despite being mass-produced and obviously crap. <laughs> and, and I'm intrigued by, I suppose, that question of, of sentiment, how does the kind of the gift shop gift take on um a you know a, a kind of distinctiveness how the people find these kind of mass-produced objects to give to others or to keep as keepsakes and then say but you know they're authentic they're distinctive how, how does crap get that kind of uh, status i guess when it's a gift right so so when we're talking about gift shops like the, the thing i was trying to figure out there was so, you know, there are knickknacks. Everybody has knickknacks. We have them today. People had them in the past. Like, you know, these tchotchkes, these things that the, you you put on your your shelves and things. And, and so, again, I wanted to figure out, like, what is the longer history of that? Where does that come from? And what do, what do those things signal to us as we're displaying them? And so, you know, I, I uh, traced the history of the gift shop. Um, we still see them today. Often they're like ye olde gift shop, you know, S-H-O-P-P-E, you know, they got a lot of extra E's in their names. Um, often they're in like tourist towns. So, uh, they're sort of a mashup of a souvenir shop and an antique shop, but they have a longer history. Um, gift shops first, first sprang up on the landscape in America in the 19 teens and 1920s as people were getting into automobiles and traveling around the country. Um, And so gift shops started out as little basically luncheonettes out of people's homes and people would, travelers would stop in these homes to get their little 
tea sandwiches and and things like that. And they admired the um, decorations on the wall. These were often big Victorian homes. They, you know, by the Roaring Twenties seemed very quaint and seemed very outdated, but in a way that was charming. And so the women running these these, um, little luncheonette places decided, well, we can sell the stuff. We can sell the decorations too, along with the food. Um, They are kind of quaint little souvenirs. They're enchanting to people. And so that was really kind of the start of of what we know today as, as the gift shop. And they would include, you know, a combination of, of like real antiques, but they would be antiques that were repurposed like a you know, uh, a hay rake that now is hung on the wall becomes a decoration. Um, they would also include reproductions of things. And so it, it, they, they did and continue to sort of freeze, freeze time in a way. And so if you think about um, today's knickknacks, like there are like seemingly high-end kind of arty knickknacks, art glass and things like that, but they're also like the country sort of quaint um, things made out of calico, you know, Amish dolls with no faces, um, distressed pieces of wood with cute sayings on them, even things like scented candles in flavors like, you know, Christmas pine and grandma's apple pie and stuff like that. That's, those are all like very, nostalgic, very conservative kinds of things. And if you have them in your home or give them to other people, it signals a particular kind of sensibility is, is what I argue in the book. You know, you're um, kind of hearkening back to an imagined past that seemed like a better time. Of course, that imagined past was completely made up. I mean, that's how nostalgia works. You know, it's a, it's a a longing for a past that never existed. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, I'm kind of, um, this is a long way of, of getting to this, but I, I was just trying to like better understand what messages might be signaled through, through these particular kinds of objects. Um, so in the institution of the gift shop was the thing that sold and continues to sell these, these objects, um, that are often mass produced, even though they purport to be handcrafted. I mean, there's loads of things we, we, we talk about in terms of the idea of sort of, you know, handcrafted, but in a factory somewhere, probably in China now, but previously, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of, of Japan as a, as a manufacturing nation early on in the book but um i'm intrigued by i suppose so far and this kind of runs throughout the book that there's a real uh, kind of sense of joy and and kind of love for a lot of this crap but what one story right towards the end of the book really stood out to me which was a tale about um a guy who basically invested in collectible coins thinking that that was going to pay for his retirement and actually these were effectively worthless. And, and you talk actually in quite a lot of detail about how in some cases collectibles cost more than the value of the metal that they're made of. And, and, and you know, thus are, are not just worthless, but they're actually, you know, kind of a burden to get rid of and, and can't be recycled and, and stuff like this. And 
one thing that, that sort of struck me and the reason that story stayed with me is a question of, I guess, kind of what's, what's the kind of dark side, the, the sort of the, the downside of crap? What, what, what are the sort of uh, problems of crap in the context of a book that I suppose is not celebratory, but, you know, wants to treat crap kind of seriously and, and, and you know, give it to you? So what are the kind of the problems with it? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of problems with it. Um, so, in in the example that you cited, so I spend time in the book talking about mass produced collectibles, objects that were and continue to be made specifically to be collected, and I focus on. Um, Franklin Mint collectible coins. I talk about Beanie Babies and how a sense of value is created for these things among collectors um, to get people to buy them. Of course, because like I want it in the case of coins, I want to have a connection to the past. Um, I want to research these things. So there's, you know, um, an edification there. Um, with the Beanie Babies, I like to look at them. So they, you know, they bring people pleasure. But the undercurrent in the marketing is these are valuable things that will appreciate in value. Simply calling them collectibles signals that these are special kinds of goods, special objects that will, you know, appreciate in in price. And so, you know, uh, companies like Thai Inc. selling Beanie Babies, Franklin Mint selling these coins, um, had all sorts of strategies to create value where it didn't exist. So typically in the fine arts market, the antiques market, things um, accrue value if they're rare, if they're well-made, if they have um, linkage to the past, you know, provenance is very important. That's why like fakes reproductions are so problematic because that affects the value of course. Um, and so these companies sort of pumped up these, these values among these mass produced things that were none of those things. They weren't well-made, they weren't rare, they didn't have any connections to the past. It was all sort of made up and all fake. And so um, what what happened and what continues to happen is that you have people like the the person um, that you mentioned from the book who um, spent you know his life savings on Franklin Mint collectible coins thinking that this would be his retirement. And then he he went to cash in these coins. He spent like $47,000 on these coins and couldn't get even 5,000 for the whole collection. And writes to this, this financial advice guy saying, what can I do? And the advice guy says, there's not much you can do. And in fact, the, the special quarters, limited edition quarters that you bought that are coated with this special color seal, whatever, um, are actually worth, worth less than 25 cents because, um, you've, you've defaced, you know, you've defaced this currency. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one of the downsides is when the, the disappointment and crap, and that gets back to, you know, my original definition, the relative crappiness of something is the distance between what it promises and what it delivers. 
um, the the degree to which something disappoints us, whether it's in you know its sentiment, if it's a gift, um, its usefulness, if it's a gadget. In this case, it's it's monetary value if it's a collectible, and then of course, um, in in my conclusion, I get into the other costs of crap. You know, the environmental um, aspects of producing cheap goods of made of things like plastic and compressed wood that you can't even recycle. You can't even reuse these things, you know, like in the past things were made of, of wood and um, glass and cloth, and you could recycle those things and make new things out of them, or you could repair them. We can't do that now. You know, we have things like fast fashion that are made, you know, not even to withstand um, being washed. So, you know, you have this disposability in our culture now um, that has environmental impacts. You know, these things don't last very long. They fill up the landfills. Um, The uh, production processes themselves are um, very harmful. Uh, They're made with often exploited labor overseas. Um, they're sold here in big box stores that often exploit their own workers. Um, and also something that isn't apparent on the surface, but it's, you know, glaring to glaringly obvious to me is that, you know, because I study objects, I really believe that we communicate a great deal through the things that we by through the things that we own, through the things that we associate ourselves with. And so if if most of our material language today is made up of crap, then our our very, you know, m- mode of expressing ourselves and understanding who we are is kind of encrapified as well. And that to me is is really kind of depressing too, not to, not to be a complete, you know, downer, but those are some of the, um, the, you know, sort of the less enjoyable aspects of, um, studying this. Yeah. And and I think that runs throughout the book and 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 is a really important kind of note to to wrap up on apart from one question, which, (laughs) I have to ask you, because it's right at the end of the book and it really stood out, was a conversation you had where uh, I can't remember if it was a friend or a colleague was kind of bemoaning the fact that fake vomit isn't what it used to be. Um, and that that was lovely. And, and I sort of thought about how, how to raise that as a question. And it, and it struck me that, is there a sense that like crap is getting worse or, you know, crap is, is not what it used to be? And I suppose sort of, you know, that moment tells us something about nostalgia. It also tells us something about, you know, manufacturing, about green issues. So, yeah, what, what, why is fake vomit not what it used to be? Sure. So, so, um, so the last chapter of Crap focuses on novelty goods, you know, like uh, exploding cigars and joy buzzers and things like um, plastic vomit. And we don't really see novelty goods too much anymore. I think, you know, I... I people have different theories. I have my own, which is that, you know, we have different distractions now. The internet is, has replaced material novelty goods. They still make things like plastic vomit and fake poop and 
and things like that. But if you go on Amazon, if you look at the reviews for things like plastic vomit, they're really funny because they say like, this isn't convincing. It's not what it's, what it used to be. It's poor quality. And in fact, I have, I've purchased some new fake vomit and it, it is not as convincing and as well-made as it used to be. Um, They used to make it in, uh, there's a whole really interesting story about the materials technologies that you, that you need to make a convincing plastic vomit, but they used to make it in the United States and they would, they would mix up these buckets of like aggregated plastics. They would include foam and all of this other stuff. And they would like blop it onto this conveyor belt, sort of like cookies and then bake it in an oven and the plastic would turn like the right kind of like bile yellow to so like there is a real it's it's ridiculous but it's you know also sort of telling that there was a real care that went into even making this very inessential novelty good which doesn't exist anymore cuz the stuff is made in China and nobody nobody cares even about plastic vomit <laughs> I mean, there's loads more we could talk about. And I mean, there's so many joyful examples in, in, in the book. Um, the, the the kind of bizarre uh, sort of chastity belt moment in, in, in the book is, uh, that is an image that will stay with me for a, a long time. But um, to, to wrap up, I, I'm sort of intrigued by uh, where you go next from this, because on the one hand, th- there's a whole research agenda in this book, and and you've talked about it already. You know, material culture, ideas of nostalgia, questions of identity, relationships with, you know, what it means to be not just uh, kind of in American society at the moment, but various other global societies that are grappling with with crap. But at the same time, the book sort of you know does come to a conclusion, and and I could see how you might want to do something, I guess, kind of completely different. Now you've almost sort of settled your account with, uh, with crap. So, so what are you sort of working on now? What are you working on next? Yeah. So um, thank you. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, what I'm working on now is um, novelty. So as I was working on this book, you know, I, as I said, I have a chapter, the final chapter is on novelty goods. I felt like there was so much more to say about those things and and sort of expanded from that just this idea of newness and how newness sort of propels culture how some people resist novelty um looking at this other people have studied this too in terms of modernity um things like that um i'm interested in pushing that history back in time um, starting in the the 19th century or earlier, um, centering it around consumer goods, but thinking about the how newness, the idea of novelty, sort of played into um, people's ideas of consumption, mass consumption, and their resistance to it as well. Um, so, like I said, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun writing about novelty goods, and I want to. I want to do more of that. I think there's there's more to say. Um, like I didn't even get to talk about sea monkeys, which I wanted to. So. 